Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The internet has become the second most popular way for Americans to meet a mate. And the digital dating market is far more efficient than the offline kind. But it comes with its own protocols and pitfalls. And there's something not quite right about a video that India's railways minister posted of the country's new high-speed train. But first... It's been called the final battle. In a province of eastern Syria, Islamic State is clinging on. A group that once counted 10 million people in its caliphate and controlled a border-spanning area roughly the size of Britain is now confined to a tiny pocket of land. It's surrounded. After a four-year operation, American-backed Kurdish forces expect victory to come in days, not weeks. And when the fighting is over, American troops will leave. We've been fighting for a long time in Syria. I've been president for almost two years, and we've really stepped it up. And we have won against ISIS. We've beaten them, and we've beaten them badly. We've taken back the land, and now it's time for our troops to come back home. The decision to withdraw has been questioned by the Pentagon's own internal watchdog, which has cautioned that without sustained pressure, Islamic State could resurge in Syria within 6 to 12 months. The days of grandeur are well and truly over. The caliphate, which spanned the territory from the Iranian border all the way over to the Mediterranean at its peak, has shrunk to a square mile. Nicholas Pelham is our Middle East correspondent. There's a village on the banks of the northern bank of the Euphrates, close to the Iraqi border, where Islamic State and its remnant are hemmed in. They're surrounded on all sides. And a few hundred fighters, perhaps 500, 600, are fighting on. You've got intense American aerial bombardment from above. You've got American fighters on the ground together with Kurdish forces who are pushing uh, towards the center of this hamlet. They've taken the bridge leading into the into the town. And you've got some Islamic State fighters who are fighting back, some with uh, Kalashnikovs, others with heavier artillery. But uh, this is a, a last stand from which there can really be only one end. How bloody a battle has it been to get this far? The wreckage across the region is quite terrifying. Uh, some of the greatest cities in the Middle East are now heaps of rubble. There are millions of people who have, have been displaced from their homes. There are tens of thousands of people who have died. At every step, Islamic State has fought to hold on to territory. And the amount of firepower that has been deployed against Islamic State has been compared by American military commanders themselves to levels that were used in the Second World War. And there are you know, cities which really look like sort of the iconic images of Dresden. And uh, it's going to take decades for the Middle East to try and recover from the wreckage of this campaign to destroy uh, Islamic State's caliphate. And about this remaining area, it, it seems that, that that area won't be held by Islamic State for long. What happens immediately after uh, IS is sort of vanquished there? The immediate victors are uh, the Kurdish forces on the ground. They control 
about a quarter of Syria. They have a, an American umbrella which protects them. And their great fear is that without the raison d'etre of the battle against IS, America will simply pull out. President Donald Trump has already said that uh, American forces will be leaving once the job is done. And the Kurdish fear is that as soon as they leave, this will leave a vacuum which uh, Syria and Turkey will rapidly exploit and overrun their hopes of having an autonomous zone uh, under their control. And, and for you, having watched the, the rise and the fall of, of the caliphate so far, what does this battle signify to you? I think what we're seeing is the collapse of a, a, a realization of an idea which captivated millions of people across the world. For a time, it really seemed as if Islamic State was going to stand up a caliphate and in the heartland of, of the Middle East. They established just not an, an armed force to protect their new borders, but a, a governance, systems of governance to perpetuate it inside. And that dream has been, has been shattered. And with it, I think it's going to be very difficult to see jihadism recover the idea of territorial control in the Middle East. But the strength of Islamic State is in the idea, not the territory, right? This is not the end of IS in any meaningful sense. I think IS's ability to be the recruiting sergeant has diminished globally. Its great strength was its success, and there will be fewer who want to raise the flag in its support when they see it as having uh, failed in its aspirations in the Middle East. Tens of thousands of people used to flock towards the Islamic State in its heyday. The Migration is now in the opposite direction. There are tens of thousands who are leaving. Today, it's no longer the most powerful of the jihadist forces in the region. It's a symbol of jihadist defeat rather than of jihadist victory. And even jihadists themselves are reluctant to offer refuge to its members. So I think it, it is greatly diminished and it's fighting on all fronts, not just in the heartlands of the Middle East, but also in Sinai and Libya uh, and beyond. But if you say Islamic State is very much on, on, a, on a downward trajectory, if its ability to recruit is much reduced, how does that play into the, the degree to which it's bad news if America pulls out? This idea that if they do, then IS will resurge in some way. A lot will depend on the immediate aftermath of, of an American withdrawal. If Syrian tanks clash with Turkish tanks and the security matrix on the ground is uh, smashed to smithereens. It's likely that there will be more ungoverned spaces which Islamic State can exploit to mount a comeback. If, however, a degree of security remains, if the Americans decide they're going to keep some form of uh, aerial umbrella, if a degree of stability returns to northeastern Syria, then it'll be difficult for Islamic State to mount a comeback. Nicholas, thank you for joining us. Jason, thank you. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. It's Valentine's Day, and if you're staring at your phone, you're not alone. The Internet has transformed the way people work and communicate. 
It's upended industries from entertainment to retailing. But its most profound effect may well be on the biggest decision that most people make, choosing a mate. Really into girls with massive bum and likes to show it off in jeans and yoga pants, full stop. I have a sex drive, so you better keep up. But that doesn't mean I want hookups. I look only for relationship. Very important. I mean, I think we're, we're dealing with English as a second language issues as well as mm. massive other issues. <laughs> That's Hal Hodson, our technology correspondent. Into <laughs> feminism, into bisexual girls. Oh, right, yeah. Owner of a cat. And that's Amani. She's a poet and a serial app dater. The ones that I really don't like is when a guy only has, like, one picture and it's, mm. like, of just, like, his crotch area or, like, his... Is that his, a thing? His, yeah, or, like, just his abs or, like, his lips. Hal scrolled through some messages with Amani from some seemingly entirely clueless men. It's a very odd one, just his lips, and then it's, like... What's a, the thinking there? Well, I don't know because there's no bio either, so <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's, like, an accident <laughs> if you... Um, Hal, this isn't the first time you've gotten personal with someone about their personal life you've made something of a habit of it uh yeah i have i, I spent a a few months uh, talking to people and meeting people around the world to discuss their online dating habits and how it sort of impacts their lives and what got you interested in the topic this is a very core part of being a human being finding a partner and we all do it in a completely different way now and you know that sort of happened Sneakily, you know, maybe we haven't paid enough attention to that. That's where we started. One of the people I talked to, her name is Amani, and she does quite a lot of online dating, and she told me all about it. So I'm 23 years old. Uh, I'm a spoken word poet. I'm an author, and and what was my last one? My location? Location. London, baby. London, London. Okay, we are. So globally, at least 200 million people are using dating services every month. And I went around the world from Sochi to Beijing to speak to people about how they date and to speak to the people who build the apps that let them do so. Right. And tell me a little bit about Amani. Is she sort of um, standard for this country in, in, in terms of an internet dater? She said she'd been on the apps for a little over a year, uh, not really looking for anything in particular. And, you know looking to have a nice time and meet interesting people, but open to stumbling into a relationship. And that's something you hear, hear a lot from people is that, you know, they're not on there for a particular reason. Well, a lot of people who um, have heard about but don't actually know these apps think that it's just about sort of meeting up for casual sexual encounters. Yeah. And I mean, let's be clear, it is. <laughs> <laughs> that too. <laughs> yes. But it's also about a whole bunch of other things. In America now, about a third of marriages are starting online, which is, you know, a big chunk of them. And that number is even higher for same-sex couples. It's like 70% of homosexual couples are meeting online now. So, it's, you know, it's huge. Why are those numbers so different? So you used to have to have very limited spaces like gay bars where you could do this kind of thing. Now, the whole world is in one or two or three gay bars that are these dating apps. And, you know, it's just much more efficient. It's a much bigger market, much more choice. And that market has been growing a lot recently, or is this just the, the effect of a very slow burn? It's been very fast growth. The big starting point was 1995 when Match.com launched in San Francisco, and the adoption was pretty immediate and pretty rapid, and really it's been growing very fast and linearly since then. And the most recent sort of big platform that's launched is Tinder, which launched in 2013 and has kind of taken taken the dating off websites and into this app that has these very particular dynamics of swiping left and swiping right. And why is this? Uh, why why is this a, a major innovation? What's different about this that that way of interacting? Honestly, the reason is that it's kind of addictive. And so it pulls people in. And it's almost sort of like boiling the whole thing down to the core of what's going on in terms of making the choice. 
online dating does have this problem that it, it favors certain kinds of lies that can be harmful, certain kinds of characteristics. Men oftentimes will post how tall they are. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's a fun one. Uh, so if they don't have that, then you don't really know. So I went on a date last weekend and... The guy didn't have it in his bio. Mm. I mean, I'm 6'2", and I never put it on my bio. I thought I, I, thought I should check my height privilege. <laughs> People can find the swiping very draining. And particularly, you know, because these things are image-based, you, you, you upload images of yourself. There's a kind of, I don't know, feedback loop where you analyze your own attractiveness via the lens of Tinder and stuff. And for Amani's part, what did, how did she find all this? Well, she actually had a pretty different response for her that lets her meet new kinds of people, which is one of the things that came out of the reporting that that is a big positive. You know, you're no longer confined to your friends and friends of friends for romantic partners. And this hypothetically can lead to better relationships. And also, I I can't say no, no No names. names. No names. Okay, Okay. so. Uh, This guy is 28. Oh, no, he likes country. Forget it. Okay, left. This dude. (laughs) He's pointing at a can of beer. Mm, cool. I mean, I think this, he, he looks nice. He like, looks kind of creepy. Creepy? Uh, what about this guy? Uh, no. No. Mm. This guy's a chin strap beard. Nope. Oh, God <laughs> damn it. I'm, I'm going to be curious to see the, the Adonis, the, 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 the Einstein Adonis who, who gets a um, nope. right. Well, okay. She just swiped left on a, a, a perfectly attractive man. <laughs> <laughs> Tastes and opinions, man. Yeah, apparently I have not got them. That's a little cringeworthy, actually, to listen to. Did, did you eventually settle on somebody? We did. It, it took some time. We, we did, this group project. Yeah, I mean, I was, okay, <laughs> Amani, she did. Uh, he doesn't have eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't. Look at the picture. His glasses are covering his eyebrows. Okay, let's find out if he has eyebrows. I make videos and take Six photos. Six two. Wow. As apparently I should state this. Look at him there. He looks Okay, like... he does look kind of cool. Yeah. Okay, let's swipe right. Yes, really? <laughs> oh, yeah, amazing. we swipe Woo! right. We did it. That, that was, I feel real triumph here. Um, does, does Amani realize that she is relatively particular? Um, I, I think she did. You know, she, she said that it, it was hard to avoid being judgmental, but she's, she's not... Uh, she's not actually particularly picky, I don't think. That's 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 how it goes. That's how it works. And in fact, she called me the day after. Hi, Amani, how are you? I'm good, thank and you. And we, we spoke to kind of explain and get to the bottom of, you know, why she feels this way and, and that it's not just pickiness for pickiness' yeah. sake. It's because when I was 17, I was in an abusive relationship and um, it was a really awful thing to have experienced so young. And of course, it yeah, uh, Amani told me about her ex, and um, she explained that he had been uh, abusive emotionally and sexually, and that this was shaping how she dates and how she thinks about relationships and potential partners. And I guess part of the reason that I like using Tinder so much is because of the illusion of control it gives me. If I look at someone and it's you know anything I don't like from jump. I can just swipe left, and I don't have... There's no one leaning over my shoulder asking, why not that guy? I mean, maybe yesterday it would have <laughs> well, been. except me yesterday, but, um, yeah. <laughs> violence and sexual violence against women kind of is epidemic, and so, you know, uh, online dating can also be in a very unpleasant place to be female, being assaulted with dumb messages and, you know, abuse there also. So I guess I, th- I feel like it's nice that it has benefits. A sense of empowerment at the very least. Yeah, yeah. 
Did she end up going on any of these dates? Yeah, she did. And uh, Cheryl, the, the producer, actually caught up with her in a coffee shop for a little uh, debrief. I went on one on Friday that I ran away from uh, after an hour because it just wasn't... Halfway through the date, he just stopped and he looked at me and went, you really want to leave, don't you? <laughs> oh, that's bad. That's bad. And I had to be like, no, you're lovely. I'm just really tired. So you cannot escape a bad date. No matter what your platform, whatever your technology, a bad date is still a thing. It is a swamp out there. <laughs> and we are all but wading through it. Um, but but this example is just a reminder, the, the, the sort of, I don't know, the, the, the time-tested idea that dating on the internet is hellish. Uh, regardless of the bad date experience, she's going to keep at it. Yeah, yeah, she is. I mean, it helps that she started seeing someone. Not the one from the bad date, clearly. Uh, no, not bad date guy. She met this other guy in an app and he sounds great. There's no pressure on the situation. It's just literally enjoying another person's company, which is, I think, the best dating can be. It's not like you're meeting someone who's 20% better for you over the internet. But even if they're tiny, even if you're just meeting people who are a little bit better for you, and there's 200 million people on it, that's that's a lot of human happiness. That's a lot of... That's, that's a large in volume, even if it's small per person. And so I think that's that's a net good. Hal, thanks a lot. Thanks very much, Jason. In the North Indian state of Haryana, the Vande Bharat Express hurdles past a railway station at breakneck speed. The design is sleek, the velocity impressive. India's railways minister tweeted, It's a bird, it's a plane. But things were not quite as they seemed. So on Sunday, Piyush Goyal, who's the uh, minister in charge of India's railways, posted a video on his Twitter account. It seemed to show a new flashy train that the government's very proud of whooshing through a station. Edward McBride is our Asia editor. The problem was that it wasn't actually the train that was traveling at high speed. It was that the minister had speeded up the footage to make it look like the train was moving fast. The guy who'd originally shot the film recognized it and pointed this out, and the minister ended up with a lot of egg on his face. Egg on his face, how? The minister came in for huge humiliation online. Wags couldn't resist all kinds of cracks at him, you know, speeding up footage of ox carts. Um, The minister himself zooming like a superhero through the streets of (laughs) Delhi. Uh, You know, it was great fun for Wags online. Right. Okay. So lots of fun, but... There is an election coming up in April. Isn't it a little unsettling that the ruling party should be a little uh, fast and loose with the truth? Quite. The story was great fun. People made all kinds of jokes online. But there is a serious side to it. As you say, there are suspicions that the BJP, that's the ruling party, in full election mode, is trying to massage, doctor, suppress all kinds of stats. For instance, the unemployment data, the government conducts a big survey and tries to work out through that what the unemployment rate is, including the informal economy, which is otherwise very hard to measure. And no one could understand why the results of that survey weren't coming out until a couple of officials resigned in protest saying the government was trying to suppress the fact that unemployment had risen to its highest level in 45 years. And there's a fear that with all kinds of statistics, the government does the same thing. Most notably, there have been lots of doubts expressed about the GDP statistics, which look very good and on which the government has sort of built its reputation as a sound economic manager. So amid accusations anyway that these substantial things are being fiddled as well as you know, fun train videos, does that speak to how the party thinks it's going to do in the election? 
I think a couple of things are going on here. First, the BJP, which had looked like a shoe-in for another term, they are suddenly on the back foot. The opposition looks reinvigorated. A couple of state elections went surprisingly against the BJP. So partly, I think the government's just getting nervous. But the other answer to that is that the BJP is a very thorough, organized force. The government is famous for trying to control every aspect of its image in a way no Indian government has ever done before. Sometimes that's harmless, but sometimes, as in the cases I've described, it it shades into outright deception. Edward, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the 5th Annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.